Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we are going to 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, just to give you a fair warning, this is a strange passage of scripture we're reading from. I joked with uh, Maddie and Destin were helping us with worship, and we usually coordinate uh, the week ahead, kind of how I'll wrap up the sermon moving into our time of worship. And I said, good luck with this one. So I'm not familiar with a whole lot of uh, songs that will fit, so they've, I'm sure, done a great job. Uh, it is a little bit of a long chapter, too. I want to read through the entire chapter this morning, because it really is one story that I think connects to the previous chapter, and I want to be able to show that to you. So we will be reading all of chapter two. It is an important chapter in the biblical narrative because it records the transition of the prophetic role from Elijah to one of his followers, Elisha. So many of you are familiar with these two prophetic names, Elijah, Elisha. Chapter two of second Kings is the transition. Elijah, in what is probably a familiar image to some of you, is caught up by this chariot of fire, this whirlwind of a storm into heaven. He ascends to heaven and he leaves behind this double portion of his anointing on Elisha, who had been one of his followers. I'm guessing, though, for some of you, the the details of that story around it in this chapter might be new, or certainly, I can't think of somebody having preached on the entirety of this chapter in my time, so it was a little bit of a challenge for me this week, too. But the more time I spent with what can feel like a strange and perplexing chapter, the more I began to realize there is something really critically important to God's word in this chapter, what he was saying to the people of that day, but I think actually what it helps us understand about our own. Uh, as you're turning there, last week we saw Elijah in that standoff with the, the king of the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaziah. And we saw how God was not going to be controlled by a king's demands, the political power that he tried to use to capture Elijah, to make demands of Elijah. But it said God's prophets would speak for God. And it exposed this tension that was so often the case in these prophetic witnesses, the king, the ruler with his power, and the reality of God speaking through this man, the prophet. This week, a few things will become clear as we read through the passage, that Elisha is the legitimate continuation of Elijah's ministry. That's going to be important to see, because that'll be one of the questions. Is Elisha actually continuing what Elijah is doing? But you'll also see that there are parallels between this chapter and last week's chapter and this question of authority, legitimacy, this willingness to listen to the voice of God through his prophet. So with that idea, legitimacy, authority, thinking about last week's passage, parallels to this week, let's work our way through it. Second Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. 
as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek for your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or in some valley. And he said, You should not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and pure salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out from the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. One of your favorite passages of scripture, right? It is a strange story across all of these turns. One of the things about us having this approach to preaching, working our way through books of the Bible, particularly these Old Testament books of the Bible, is I just come across these passages and am forced to deal with them. Um, I'm not sure if I was randomly picking passages to preach from, this would ever be one of those passages I would put on my list. You know, that story where the she-bears tore apart the kids outside the woods. That would fit perfect for this Sunday. But because we work our way through these passages, this is where we find ourselves. 2 Kings chapter 2, coming after 2 Kings chapter 1. And so it forces you in what I've actually found to be a really helpful discipline, to take seriously the next passage. To really ask, why does God put this passage, this story, in this Bible, in this place? Why on this particular Sunday do we find ourselves here, reading, studying, trying to understand what God is speaking through this passage? 
Um, you can break the story down into two halves. The first is that scene of transition. Elijah being caught up to heaven, the cloak being left, the same miracle that he had just done, parting the waters, now Elisha taking on that cloak, the symbolic image of him picking up the prophetic ministry of Elijah, and now Elisha too, passing back through those parted waters. The first half of the story very much is the transition of Elijah's ministry to Elisha. The second half is these responses, the way people now respond to Elisha in similar ways to how they had been responding to Elijah. The end of Elijah's ministry and the beginning of Elisha's is framed around these particular geographical locations in this first half of the chapter. Elijah moves, being followed by Elisha, we're told from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan River. Then you have this miraculous parting of waters as they pass through the Jordan River and on into the wilderness. Each time it's described as Elijah descending, descending from Gilgal, descending from Bethel, descending from Jericho, down to the Jordan River Valley. He's moving from the hill country, the center section of Israel, all the way down into the Jordan Valley, crossing it and moving into the wilderness. One way of thinking about this sort of geological set, the way he's moving through, is as a kind of reverse exodus. This is similar to the way that Israel came into the Promised Land, crossing through the Jordan up into the hill countries. Of course, one of those key entrance points being Jericho itself. But now Elijah moves from these primary centers of Israel in the hill country, down across the Jordan and back out into the wilderness. This image of one of God's prophets leaving the people and moving to the margins, the wilderness, is a common theme throughout scripture. Moses, considered to be that great first prophet, moves out of the camp to a tent of meeting outside. John the Baptist did his work in the wilderness, calling people from all of Judea and Jerusalem out into the Judean wilderness. Jesus himself, upon his baptism, moves for those 40 days of prayer and fasting and temptation into the wilderness. And so it is a kind of move that Elijah makes, sensing that the end is coming, that Elisha's commissioning will take place, moves away from the people and into the wilderness to encounter God. Each time he moves, Elijah offers Elisha a chance to turn back. Make no mistake, this prophetic calling that Elijah has carried has not been an easy one. We see the miracles and imagine how great to have that kind of prophetic power, But Elijah has often suffered and been isolated and found himself in conflict, and he gives Elisha at every chance an opportunity to avoid it. But Elisha is determined, no matter what follows, no matter the cost, I will follow you until the very end. He decides to continue Elijah's work, knowing full well the complexity and difficulty of that calling. And so it is that Elisha is there to witness Elijah being taken up into this storm, this image of Horses and chariots of fire carrying him to the heavens above. Symbolically, he leaves behind his cloak, which Elisha picks up. The same cloak that he had used to part the waters, Elisha now does as well. Now we're told that this miracle, the two men moving into the wilderness through the parted waters, and Elisha coming back doing the same, was witnessed by 50 prophets from Jericho who stood at some distance and watched all of this unfold. The image for them was clear enough. Elijah was the prophet as they went. Elisha is now that prophet in return. What they had witnessed, they understood, was that Elisha was now picking up and continuing the ministry Elijah had been doing. 
But this group of 50 witnesses can't seem to fully accept the reality that Elijah is gone and Elisha is now the replacement. They request of Elisha to send out 50 men searching for Elijah because maybe it is that God has picked him up in this whirlwind and dropped him on some mountain or in some valley and he apparently now needs to be rescued by them. So for three days, this group of 50 men search everywhere for Elijah, even though Elisha has told them very plainly, you won't find him. And they eventually also come to the conclusion, Elijah is gone, Elisha is the new prophet. It's interesting that they obviously recognize Elisha's prophetic role. They see him come back through parting the waters, but there's something in them that makes it hard to fully accept and believe, a kind of skepticism. Maybe they need to keep searching to find Elijah. He's in need. One of the big questions so far in our look at 2 Kings, chapter 1 last week, chapter 2 this week, is this question of authority and legitimacy. The way we saw it last week was this tension between the king, the ruler with his political power, Ahaziah, and Elijah, who is the voice of God, the prophet, which has the greater authority and legitimacy. Ahaziah making his commands of Elijah, Elijah being one of the few people that would have dared to refuse the king's orders. And so the two are set in this tension of authority. One, the earthly rule of man, and the other, a voice of God. Here, though, that question of authority and legitimacy, though it's deferential, they acknowledge that Elisha is now prophetic, there's still some question about who is actually in charge. Sure, Elisha seems to have power, but they seem reluctant to fully embrace it and instead want to make sure for themselves Elijah isn't just hiding somewhere and they go looking for him. Well, now convinced that Elisha is the guy, these same people of Jericho bring him one of their problems. Apparently, Jericho was a great place to live, but the water at some point had turned bad. It had made it difficult to grow crops, and it made people sick within the town. And so they bring Elisha this problem. Symbolically, he requests this bowl full of salt, these images of healing in the ancient world, and he pours them into the water and heals the water, makes the water clean and usable. And so it is, Elisha is now recognized, legitimized, and doing the same kind of miraculous works that Elijah had done as well. I think at this point it's really important for us to understand this topic of authority, to understand what it is these prophets were meant to do in the ancient world. We find ourselves at the end of Elijah's, but just beginning what will be the prophetic ministry of Elisha. So how should we think about these Old Testament prophets? How do these Old Testament prophets fit into the story of Israel, and what do we make of them in our own day? Maybe you've heard people or met people who describe themselves as prophets, or certainly people who have prophetic ministries or moments of prophetic clarity. So what are these prophets of Elijah and Elisha? Um, In the beginning of the Old Testament, God worked primarily with families. You'll remember this from the stories of Genesis. He calls Abraham and works within Abraham's family of Isaac and Jacob. But as that family began to grow into a people, a nation, God began to call forward prophetic leaders. The first prophet, although we don't often describe him that way, scripture and the ancient Israelites did, the first prophet was Moses, who was considered by them to be the greatest of all prophets. It was Moses who heard from God and spoke on behalf of God the law that had been given to Israel. But slowly, throughout Israel's history, that law, the words God had spoken to Moses, began to be dismissed or marginalized from Israel's identity and their worship. So it is we entered this period of kings. 
where Israel struggled to maintain pure worship, as God had called and given Moses directions to do. So God begins to, in Moses, what had been political leadership and prophetic leadership in one, God begins to separate those two things, calling kings, Saul and David and Solomon, and then bringing alongside those kings as a check on that power, prophets, Samuel and Nathan, who weren't afraid to confront them. That balance of kings, but a prophetic witness to those kings, carries on through First and Second Kings, with men like Elijah and Elisha going toe-to-toe with these political leaders and trying to call Israel and its leaders back to who God was and what God was doing. These prophets function, if you want a clear way of thinking about them, as a voice of God, a spokesman for what God is doing and saying to his people. They're tasked with discerning what God is saying, and often asked to speak publicly before the people and its rulers. Sometimes they do that in spoken word. Sometimes they do that in writing, like we have the writings of Isaiah or Jeremiah, prophets. Sometimes they also do it through strange symbolic acts. These prophets will put on display God's truth by the way they live, the actions that they take. We think of someone like John the Baptist, who has a strange diet and a strange way of dressing and calls people into the wilderness. He takes on a kind of symbolic act as a way of also speaking for God. Chapters like this one in 2 Kings can seem a little bit strange and over the top to us. As you get into the prophetic ministries of these men, sometimes the things they do are very strange to us. But if you pay close attention to them, you begin to realize that there is something important they're trying to communicate. They're not just strange because they're prophets. They're doing these acts as a way of trying to shake people and wake them up to what God is saying in their midst. This is not a world where people have Bibles sitting around on coffee tables. In the ancient world, many of them had lost touch with the Bible altogether. We'll come to a point in 2 Kings chapter 22 where the King Josiah actually discovers the law tucked away in some corner, covered in dust in the temple, that Israel had walked so far from Israel, God, that they had literally lost the sacred scriptures that God had given them. So imagine this ancient world where people are trying to understand God, but also tempted by the gods of the pagan nations around them, none of them having Bibles they turn to or even knowing how to read, and those who had been tasked with keeping the words of God before them, having apparently completely abandoned that job, So it is, God sends these prophetic witnesses to declare God's word and call them back to that faithfulness of Israel's God. God uses these strange prophets with often these strange actions to try to wake people up to who he is and what he has commanded. One of my favorite writers is a southern novelist, Flannery O'Connor, who, if you've ever read, is a very strange writer. She says this about why some of her writing was so strange. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. I think that's a good way of putting what these prophets often do in Israel. They shock people, shake people into paying attention. Shout in ways that stand out in a world that was noisy and chaotic and filled with prophets from every other possible religion and God. They come along God's people and force them to listen again to what God is speaking. And sometimes they do it in strange and unusual and peculiar ways. They won't allow God's people to be totally silent in God's word. They help them hear, help them recognize again. 
Israel is increasingly pagan, increasingly abandoning their God, increasingly violent and sinful. And so God sends these voices to continue speaking. What you have in this second chapter are these images of the prophetic witness, God's voice being passed from Elijah to Elisha. And you have these strange images that are meant to force us to recognize that it is the legitimate voice of God. And then you have around it the way in which people respond to God's voice, to this prophetic witness. Ahaziah last week refused to listen. Instead, he indulged his power, flexed his control, made his demands, attempted to silence God's voice whenever it contradicted what he would have. Isaiah represents, as we talked about last week, a kind of pride, a kind of pride in our own power, our own abilities, our own control. But here in this story, you have a couple of other ways that people often respond to God's voice. You have these 50 prophets who apparently seem to be impressed by what Elisha has been able to do, but still find themselves skeptical and unwilling to fully commit until they have time for themselves to investigate and draw final conclusions. And then you have this final, final group, the one that I have not talked about yet that's probably the most obvious to you in the story, a group of kids who mock Elijah and end up being cursed by this punishment of bears. Apparently, as Elisha went, having now healed the waters at Jericho, he's traveling the opposite route that they had come down, back through the Jordan, back through Jericho, on to Bethel. He's going back into the center of Israel. We read in the ESV version that a group of small boys began to mock him. I don't love the way the ESV translates this. It is possible small boys is the way it should be. Um, The American Standard Version, which is a little more of a literal translation of the Bible, it uses the phrase young lads, which I think is probably closer. Katan is the Hebrew word small. It can also be translated insignificant or unimportant. It's not just little. It can also mean little in stature. And na'ar, the Hebrew word for boys, it really refers to any man who was unmarried, which in the ancient world, um, you probably were a child because they were getting married in teenage years. So while you're probably imagining four and five-year-old boys running around mocking him, it very may well have been that these were kind of adolescent teenagers. Imagine a kind of loitering gang of kids mocking the prophet as he goes up. Perhaps they really are this kind of uh, uh, unemployed, unmarried group of men sitting around. They see the prophet and they began to make jokes at him, probably appearing strange, not fitting in. So it is Elisha turns and curses them. And as we read, suddenly two bears come rushing out of the woods and maul 42 of these boys. It's strange, as I said, but the more time I spent with it, the more you begin to realize there's a kind of intentional parallel going on between this story and the story of Ahaziah. Remember, there are multiple ways that we reject God's authority and the legitimacy of his voice. It's not always just pride and rebellion like Ahaziah showed. The king was definitely an image of that, rejecting it by power, by strength and control. But here you have an equal kind of rejection of Elisha, not by power or control or confrontation, but by a joke, by a dismissal, by a kind of mocking. Ahaziah's men specifically called Elijah to come down. If you'll remember, they say, oh, man of God, come down to the king. Here, these boys specifically say, go up, you bald head, go up, a kind of opposite to the command the men under Ahaziah had said. 
Ahaziah is also remembered in that, remembers in that story that it's Elijah because, as he says, he was a hairy man or a man covered in hair, may have been wearing a camel garment or something. Here, there's also a kind of opposite to that. How do they mock him? You bald head, you head without hair. Elijah called down fire to consume those who resisted him. Here, Elisha calls forth bears. There's this kind of opposite parallel going on between the confrontation with Ahaziah and the confrontation here with this group of boys. The point of this parallel is that one group may reject God's voice out of power and control. The other rejects it as insignificant, a joke, something that doesn't really apply to them, but something they feel entitled to mock and belittle. So let me ask you this question. What do we do with a story like this? You find yourself on some Monday morning devotional time with your cup of coffee, ready to experience the word of God, and you open to 2 Kings chapter 2. Are you supposed to pray for a double anointing of prophetic witness? Are you supposed to fear a judgment of bears rushing from out of the woods? I think there's one more parallel between these two stories that helps us understand what it's asking us to do. Last week, one of the things we pointed out was the constant repetition in the story, which you'll actually notice plays out in similar ways here. The single thing that stands out in last week's story was this third official who comes, and instead of making his commands, leaning into his authority under the king, he falls at Elijah's feet and asks to be spared. He submits to the real authority and power he knows Elijah represents. Here, at the center of this story, is something similar. A group of men from Jericho come to Elisha with a problem. The water is bad. Elisha, the voice, the prophet of God, can certainly fix it. For their simple request, Elisha heals the water. In two chapters, where you have fire consuming literally 100 men and 42 more being torn apart by bears, there is also a humble leader who throws himself before the prophet's feet and pleads to be spared, and a town who comes out and says, could you heal our water, heal our land, heal our sickness? What do these two groups in the center of these two strange stories help us understand? Well, first of all, it's not all that dramatic. What they do can actually be missed for all of the drama that's breaking around them. The fire from heaven, the bears rushing out of the woods, the questions of prophetic legitimacy. But in the center of the stories, you have a humble official who humbles himself on his knees and a group of men who come with problems. Can you help us? You have fear of the Lord, a recognition of God's true power and authority, and a realization of need, a willingness to ask for help for something that can't be fixed on our own. On either side of the requests, you have other reactions, pride, grasping for control, arrogance, mocking, ridicule, and joke. And in the middle, this humble fear of the Lord, this realization of human need. In the end, there is a lot of drama in these two chapters, a lot of startling consequences. But really, at the heart of it, there's a simple question. How do you respond to the voice of God? How do you respond to the strange and unusual and perhaps oddly fitting nature of God in this world around you? In a world full of kings with power, in a world where everything is a joke and mocked, when a strange man walks in, the voice of God, 
How do you respond? One of my favorite Old Testament commentators, Walter Brueggemann, says perhaps the most important factor in interpreting this text, he's writing about 2 Kings 2, is the recognition of its wild, inscrutable quality that refuses any explanatory approach. The better perspective is simply to track the odd drama and to be amazed at the surge of power upon this new man that defies our rationality. In our day, we don't have these kinds of prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who walk up and are the single voice of God articulated to man, the revelation of God to his people. We don't usually see prophetic fire falling from heaven or bears as divine judgment on rebellion. But we see plenty of arrogant boasting, plenty of men opposing the voice of God out of arrogance and control and power. And we see plenty of mobs, groups, who take their pride in mocking and laughing and belittling the things of God as backwards, unrelevant. We have our own unsettled questions of authority. Do we have a prophetic revelation from God of our own? Do we have a prophet in our day who speaks and reveals God's word to us? It's no coincidence, I think, that when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, as his clothes began to take on radiant light, and as they began to realize that he was no mere man, but the Son of Man, the Son of God, who was it that joined Jesus on either side in that moment of transfiguration? Moses, the first and greatest of those Old Testament prophets, and Elijah, the one here. It's not hard to recognize the point of those two men flanking Jesus in that moment of his transfiguration. Jesus is the great prophet, greater than Elijah, greater than Moses, the fulfillment, the voice of God, the revelation of God to man. Jesus is our Elijah, our Elisha. He is for us a revelation of who God is and what God is speaking to us. As Jesus himself would say, have I not spoken on, I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. That Jesus comes to speak for God and reveal God's will, his voice to us. And so are we not in so many ways like those 50 men of Jericho who stood at some distance who saw Elijah part the waters and Elisha do it upon return, who saw Elijah caught up in the storm, have we ourselves not stood at some distance and seen this prophet of ours, Jesus, coming in power, being lifted up in a storm of his own, death on the cross and resurrection and ascension of his own? And so we, Like those men in that day, looking at Elijah, looking at Elisha, find ourselves looking at Christ with a very simple question like they had. What will we make of this prophet of God? What will we do with these words that he reveals to us? Jesus, the word of God. There is arrogance, a refusal to bow a knee, a refusal to accept it, knowing that The consequences will be a risk of my own control, my own power. There's a kind of skepticism. Maybe this Jesus is the word of God, the voice of God, but let me go check every other option before I'm fully ready to commit. Maybe my way's been dropped somewhere in a valley or a hill. Give me three days and then maybe we can talk. There's also a kind of ridicule. That Christianity is a kind of joke, a crucified Messiah, silly, superstitious, Or is there is this way of these two undramatic groups in the story, 
A man who recognizes the power of God's voice and humbles himself, save me. And this group who recognizes that here is one who will heal, who will restore, if only I bring to him my deepest needs. Last week I mentioned that when it comes to human need, we're naive to think that there's some great human progress, that somehow we are now in a different position than these Israelites all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 2. But in so many ways, we are just the same, in need of being saved and spared from this broken and complicated world, and with our own needs, our own healing, our own poisoned water, constantly cursing ground and life and body. And though he is slow to anger, patient, not willing that any should perish, do we imagine that somehow in our own day, we will get away with arrogance or skepticism or ridicule? Do we imagine that we can make God's prophet now a joke, that we can keep it at arm's length until we're fully ready, that we could somehow have our way and his and not invite on ourselves the same kind of judgment that they did? It may not be fire from heaven or bears, but don't be naive. When we too reject the one that God has sent to spoke, the consequences could not be higher. He is life. He is power. He is salvation. And to reject his voice is to reject those very things ourselves. So, like that commentator put it, we read this passage, we look at the life of Christ, we track the odd drama and are amazed at this surge of power on this new man that defies our rationality. And we're left with that simple question, how will we respond to God's voice to us, his authority? in the word of God. In the end, one of the things that always surprises me about Jesus is how little he actually asks of us. He doesn't require us to put on some big display. He doesn't require us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. What he does require is us to recognize his authority, to recognize that he is Lord, to recognize that he is the legitimate voice of God, the revelation of God to us. What is it that these two groups do in this passage other than acknowledge that authority and acknowledge their need? The servant who throws himself down and asks to be spared. The town who comes with their poison water and asks for healing. The prophet has no demands for these men. He spares the one and heals the water of the other. And so it is with Christ. He does not come to be our curse, to be our slave master, to flex his authority or to mock us. But simply he comes as the one with authority, the voice of God, and asks that we reject the arrogance and the skepticism, the mocking of this world, humble ourselves, lay ourselves before him, and bring to him whatever need we have, knowing that he has the power to heal. Let me end with this and we'll pray. We live in a time in which this is really hard to do, a world in which the wisdom of this age does not recognize the authority or the legitimacy of Christ. In our day, it's the wise man who is always the most skeptical. To believe anything too much is somehow to lack wisdom. We live in a day where we demonstrate power by our defiance, our unwillingness to give in or submit to anything but our own will, our own plans, our own vision. We live in a day in which a man caught up in a crowd 
can make anything trivial, anything an amusement, anything a joke, anything laughed off and left undealt with. This idea, this image of power and skepticism and ridicule are not just ancient ideas. This is the world that surrounds us, the world that affects and impacts the way we recognize and think about God and Christ and make sure at any moment when this word of God comes to you, These responses are just as quick and natural and at arm's length as they were in the ancient world. This world will not lead you to Christ. It will not help you recognize him. It will not give legitimacy to what he teaches or says. And make sure that if you do it, if you humble yourself and bring to him your needs, you will fit as strangely into this world as these individuals did into the middle of these stories. But you will be the one spared, the one saved, the one healed and given new life, the one who sees and understands what we see by these stories so clearly, that God is the ultimate authority, that God has control over all things, that his voice cannot be beaten or overcome or ridiculed or ignored. Those who are willing to truly listen to the voice of God, as strange as it may seem in this world around us, are those who are given salvation, who are given new waters of healing poured out, who are ultimately given life. It is a strange story, isn't it? Strange images. But we ourselves live in a strange time with strange images all around us too. If you want to hear the voice of God, it takes nothing more than what these two represent. The humility to lay your life down before him and a willingness to bring to him your deepest needs in all honesty and hear what God would say to you. Let's close in prayer this morning and we'll worship. Heavenly Father, I'm humbled this morning realizing how much this chapter is like our own world. That around us we see similar destruction and death, the complexity of this world, God, we recognize how hard it is to hear your voice in it. God, I know in my own heart, and I see it in the world around me, these responses of arrogance and pride, the skepticism, the fight for my own will, the ridicule, the joke, the dismiss. God, we don't want to find ourselves like these in this story, because we see the consequences. That to turn our back from you is to invite judgment and destruction that we can't carry upon our own shoulders salvation and hope and life, but we indulge and dig our lives deeper into this world of death and pain. So we do this morning what those in these stories get right. We come before you and in the midst of all of this complexity, we lay our lives before you and say, save us, spare us. And we bring to you the broken parts of our own life and our world. God, we don't know how to heal these waters. We don't know how to heal this land. We don't know how to make this place worth living in. But we know you do. We recognize this morning that you have the authority. That you, Jesus, are the legitimate voice of God revealing to us the way to life, the way to healing, the way to hope. God, forgive us for so often when our own ideas and opinions get in the way when we fight for what we would have rather than humbly listening to what it is you are offering. We pray that your spirit would give us the humility to do it, to turn an ear towards you, 
that we wouldn't lose you like Israel so often did, but that your voice, your revelation would be at the center of our hearts and our lives, that you would deepen our hunger for your word, and that by it we would know you in new ways, that we would work it into our lives in deeper ways, that our lives would be more centered in submission to you and who you are, and that by it you would give us that healing. You would save us and spare us in our own homes and in our own relationships and our own bodies, that this water would be healed, new water poured out. And that we would sense it's by your power that you do it. So this morning we worship you. We pray that this worship would be a sign of our acceptance of your authority, King of kings and Lord of lords. That we will not be counted among those who rebel in power or pride, those who skeptically wait for other options or those who mock and ridicule, but that we would be counted by this worship this morning as those who call you Lord, who build our lives on your word, who trust you to be and do who you said you would be and what you would do. Jesus, it's in your name.